You are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today we have with us in the studio, Tina. Tina is an author and filmmaker, and just finished co-writing her first full-feature screenplay. Trigger warning, this episode does talk about suicide. We'll be right back with Tina, but first let's talk about uncertainty. Lately, I'm feeling uncertain about a lot of different things in my life, mostly my job because I have a one-year position and who knows what's happening next year. And I'm trying to be sort of okay with that and not let it push me into a depression. And I found that it's been helpful to be to just tell some friends about it, like, hey, you know, I, I, I'm i not sure what next year is going to look like. I hope that I have a job. And <laughs> and and then be, thinking about being okay, like what's the worst case scenario is that my contract isn't renewed and I don't have a position next year. Well, I can still teach. There's plenty of teaching positions around town. And I'll still find some way of being there, there are many skills that I have there. I'll find some way of being involved in doing things, but it's been really nice to have the full-time job. And I really would like to, I don't want to fool myself. I really would like to have it again next year. And that uncertainty, I find that like you have one thing and then it bleeds into everything else in your life. You know, my boyfriend wants to make some plans and I'm like, well, I don't know if I'm employed next year. So I don't know if I want to contract to contract. And I talked to somebody else and he's like, we're all in the same boat. Nobody knows if they have a job next year. No one ever really knows. And I'm like, you're right. But if if we want to make plans, if they involve money, I'm not sure. I might want to save a bunch of money this year, you know, to sock it away. And I mean, that's not a bad plan to do anyway. And so living in uncertainty, it's, if you think about it, nothing in life is certain. We don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow. I certainly, I mean, that was part of how I got into depression in the first place is my stepdad died and then my dad died in the same year and it was a little too much. And I have a hard time with change and uncertainty. Like those are things that will trigger my depression. And so I looked up in the Atlantic, actually, they had an article about how uncertainty fuels anxiety because that's, I think anxiety comes first for me, depression is second. So they say in the article, one of the downsides of the most awesome phenomena of human consciousness is the ability to worry about the future. We know the future exists, but we don't know what's going to happen in it. In other animals, unpredictability or uncertainty can lead to heightened vigilance. But I think what's unique about humans is the ability to reflect on the fact that these future events are unknown or unpredictable, says Dan Group, a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and there's the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds. Uncertainty itself can lead to a lot of distress for humans in particular. As a rule, humans prefer certainty to uncertainty. Studies have shown that people would rather definitely get an electric shock now than maybe be shocked later and show greater nervous system activation when waiting for an unpredictable shock or other unpleasant stimulus than an expected one. 
Where people differ is in the degree to which uncertainty bothers them. So I think in some ways I have a good way of like kind of riding out those waves of uncertainty that happen in life. But it's that factor where change can be really hard for me and anxiety because I do tend more toward anxiety first as a go-to. I find that I have all these little coping skills. I was looking up another article about coping skills and one of them was to imagine the worst. That's actually a coping skill. And I tell myself, well, nobody has any certainty in their job. And what is, what happens if I have no job next year? And then I go through, well, I, I own my home. That's a really good starting point. I live in a neighborhood that I love. That's a good starting point. I have family and resources. That's a nice starting point. And if I save some money this year, I could spend four months looking for something else. I'm like, worst case scenario, I'm still an extremely privileged person. <laughs> and I, I was talking to a student of mine who's working on a project in Rocky Point and, and doing some photographs. And we we're just talking about like, he's like, how poor poor is in other places, how extraordinarily poor the bottom end of poor can be. And that even then, he said, it's, it seems like people still have fun and have a good time. Sometimes we, we look at somebody else's situation and go, oh, that's so terrible, those poor people, when actually their experience of things, they have the same level of uncertainty we do, or maybe even less, because they're certain that tomorrow they have no money. <laughs> tomorrow will be the same as today, and they'll go through the same struggles. So rather than making a judgment on people's economic situation, he said, you know, I see people as having a good experience as enjoying their lives to the actually to a greater degree than I do in his friendships that he's made there. So I'll just end on a, a quote from Margaret Atwood. When nothing is sure, everything is possible. So I thought that was a really beautiful thing. And I hope that's helpful to any of you who are in, an, we're all in uncertainty, but if, who's having a particularly uncertain week that you can just look at it as some good possibilities. <laughs> So today we have with us in the studio, Tina. Tina is an author and filmmaker and just finished co-writing her first full feature screenplay. Hello, Tina. Welcome to the Depression Session. Hello, Laura. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. And so what's new with you? What's going on in your life that you'd like to share? New. Well, I just uh, returned back to school because I want to go back and get a master's. And since I, I had great difficulty during a period of time and in, in previously with my bachelor's before, uh, my GPA is a little low, ah. just a little shy. So I'm going back for a second degree in, as a bachelor's so that I can get my GPA up so that I can go back to school as in the master's program that I want. And have less uncertainty. <laughs> My life is so uncertain. I mean, I didn't even realize I was going to be back in school until July. Wow. That's so, exciting, though. It's very exciting. And I have a lot more energy because of it. But boy, you know, you talk about uncertainty, especially at my late age, when everybody's going either cheer or they just don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're doing what? 
What? What? <laughs> That's okay. But I have a lot of support these days, so I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. So. And and you're an author. So what type of writing do you do? Well, I'm I do poetry. I have a couple of poetry books out. And you can find them on Amazon, if that's okay to plug. Oh, and, <laughs> and I also have a, a, a fairy tale, which is actually based on the lessons that I learned with my suicide attempt, so oh. to speak, my depression, the whole depression. So the fairy tale revolves around a young girl who experience, experiences deep depression. Mm. And it affects her whole environment. Wow. So... Um, I want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Amanda. Mm-hmm. And it's the first first in a series of fairy tales that have uh, heroines. Oh, so neat. she is the first heroine. Very so cool. it's a, And it, it's about... It's good for, I, I gave it actually to my last therapist or my second to last therapist. And, uh, she said it was very appropriate, even up to 12 year olds, which I was surprised because I kind of geared it towards seven to nine. Mm-hmm. It's about fairy tale age. Anyway. I was still reading fairy tales at 14. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you never but, know. <laughs> but she found it very, uh, very, uh, that it would be a useful tool for those. For those kids who have experienced trauma as a child. So um, I have po- uh, post-traumatic syndrome associated with childhood. Yeah. Which is really hard. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't learn about that or I didn't really examine it until after I had a very um, extreme suicide attempt, which landed me in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And that was a many, many years ago. And um, it was a couple of years after my first, my, well, my second child. So it was, um, I, there was so many things that were going on in my life. And everything just kind of cascaded. And there was it was a lot to take on. And for somebody who had been growing up with childhood trauma, and all that, and not getting the therapy that I needed back then, everything just, I don't know if the word exploded, imploded, I should say, is probably more like it. And I had the good fortune of waking up in the hospital. And the psychiatrist who attended me at that, uh, as soon as I woke up, he said, well, you can either go to this hospital or this hospital. (laughs) So I, I didn't have a choice, but I was... I I really took that opportunity to say, okay, that's it. I don't know if it's okay. To me, I, it was, I took it personally, uh, spiritually, that this was a sign that I had an opportunity to forget about everything up to that point and that I needed to move forward but in order to move forward, I had to deal with everything in the past. Mm. So, and I did. So I spent about uh, a total of that year, about two and a half months in the hospital. Deep therapy, every therapy I could get, uh, including some psychodrama or whatever, and art therapy and dance therapy. It was very interesting. 
it gave me a chance to explore different therapies, which was very helpful. They also stuck me on all kinds of drugs at that time. And they didn't know how to, what exactly was going on until, you know, I reached a certain point. And it actually took about, um, three, three years of intense psychotherapy. Well, it's a long time. But there was so much that I didn't realize what had occurred in the past was still affecting me almost 30 years later, about 25 years later, let's say. And, you know, part of, part of that trauma had so many ingredients put into it. There was the trauma itself. Then there were, there were environmental things that contributed to that trauma. I was adopted at a very early age and had huge abandonment issues. And growing up uh, in the 60s, parents didn't have all the resources that they have today. You know, it, it was just buckle up and lace up your shoes and march forward. <laughs> and they didn't quite understand what was going on to this you know, little kid in their family. And then all of a sudden, they uh, a, a slight miracle happened and they were able to have more children. And so then I became part of this huge family. And the attention that I needed all of a sudden kind of just vanished. And so there was that the whole abandonment kind of thing going on. And so I was kind of left to my own devices, <laughs> which was kind of remarkable because I kept exploring different spiritual paths and trying to understand and, and trying to help heal and cope with what was going on. And, and then life happens to you in the meantime and, and relationships aren't quite what they probably should be because you're still not where you need to be maturity wise. And so you enter into relationships and have all kinds of other things compound on top of that. So there I was, you know, in the hospital and, and under troubling circumstances and, and trying to keep myself afloat. And I was fortunate, you know, that I did have a little bit of financial help because they understood that I was just in no shape to be able to deal with the financial I think I returned to school at that time also, and that's probably part of the reason. I can actually chart it on my my uh, my classes that I was struggling still at that time, and that that's when my GPA fell. But I did. I, st I still made it through. I wish that I had had that support system from my family and that understanding, and I was privileged in that I came from a privileged family, but with it came deficiencies in that it was not a good idea to be in the position that I was, that somehow it was my fault, which is really hard to deal with. And so there's also this kind of like brushing aside and, and brushing away and um, from a support system that I should have had. And that's a part of that history and time. I think it would be different today 
had we grown up at a different period of time. So for those folks out there that are older, you know, and I'm sure you can relate. And for those younger folks, I think, you know, you have an opportunity to reach out a much better chance of reaching out and getting the support that you need. Fortunately, I did have the support of the psychotherapy community and which was good. Not always, it still is not at its peak of where it needs to be. Let's put it that way. There are good and bad therapists out there. Let's put it that way. Or not as good. (laughs) (laughs) And I was fortunate, uh, very fortunate in my psychotherapy in that I still really am thankful that I had him. I don't think he realizes how much, because I ended up having all the notes from the psychotherapies and all that. Um, I asked for those records and, and received those. Anyway, I don't think he realized how, how important he was in my recovery. But it was very important because he was a, a child psychiatrist. Somehow, with all my luck, I think I'm the luckiest person in the world sometimes, I ended up with a, psycho, a psychiatrist who understood the needs of a child and that I was stuck in that childhood trauma. And that was really the best uh, thing that could have happened in that period of time. And at one point, I I had to, I had uh, backtracked in one session. For some reason, I I started thinking maybe it really was my fault. Maybe I am the one to blame. Maybe I didn't handle it the way I should have as a child. And and that I really was, you know, all these bad things that, you know, I had acted out on and, and things that happened to children as a result of trauma. There's all these things you just don't know what's going on. And so you're reaching and stretching and trying to figure out. And sometimes you do them in very traumatic ways to other people. And my family didn't understand what was going on. And so I started backtracking and said, well, maybe I'm the one to blame, you know, and I went for about 15 minutes, and then my my psychiatrist, the only time he was ever angry, and he wasn't really demonstrative about his anger. It was very, he held it very tightly in. He stood up, he closed his book, you know, that he had been writing in, and, and he said, I don't think children are inherently evil. <laughs> and he walked away, and it was like, oh my goodness. I really believed, and it was really kind of um, embedded within my my mind that I really was the one to blame, and I'd been holding that part of me this whole time as well. So it's really important to have those supportive systems because you're already dealing with so much. So, and I think that if you reach out, you'll find that you'll find people who understand. And it's important to reach out. I think that would have prevented probably a lot of things that happened. So, I can say today that I am no longer taking any antipsychotics or any kind of whatever new drug that everything they gave me everything trying to find something and uh, because they believed I was bipolar to begin with 
And through the psychotherapy and everything, they, they realized the drugs weren't going to help. It was the psychotherapy that was going to help because it was actually the trauma. It wasn't a chemical situation. It was just simply the thing that had happened as a child. So I would like to mention about the book again because I think it's very important for children to be able to have tools and it was a very therapeutic thing for me to be able to delve into this in the voice of the fairy tale, which for some strange reason is my voice. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, it's a, it's a lovely book. I had wonderful illustrator. I'm very grateful for his assistance and collaboration. And it was a great process. But I think it's important for people to have tools and when it comes to childhood trauma do we really need to have something that I want to say is not chemical it's not a chemical thing so we have to work with other things thank you so much for telling your story you're welcome thank yeah. you for letting me share because I, I hope it helps other people yeah I really do well, one of the things that really came to my mind was you were talking about growing up in the 60s. I grew up in the 70s, and it's it's not a very long time period between the two, but that there, there I think every decade has a very particular, well, it depends on your socioeconomic, blah, 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 right. but like there's a certain point of view on child rearing and it gets it gets to us through media through books through television mm -hmm. through radio there are all these different you know dr spock says and things like that and whether or not somebody is engaging with those things there are certain belief systems on raising children and i, I remember my grandmother my step-grandmother was a very much spare the rod spoil the child mentality about child raising she really, she whipped her children. I mean, she yeah. would get a stick out, a twitch, as she'd call it, right. and go through and hit who was ever in the way. Exactly. And that was how you raised your children. And she was a good mother. In her mind, that was good mothering. She taught them to be civilized human beings and to toe the line and be responsible and like all the things that she believed in. But she grew up in the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's just interesting the idea of like growing up in the 60s and what the parenting would be like at that time. Yeah. And then, I mean, was it strict-ish or just sort of like get yourself together? No well, <laughs> it was very much get yourself together, but because of, of the position that our family was in, there was also these social expectations of behavior. Mm -hmm. So there, there, you weren't unruly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, expression was limited to certain periods of time kind Seen of a thing. Seen and not heard a little bit? Yes, very much so. Especially there's a lot of interaction with with. My, my father's cohorts or co-workers and there, there are very high expectations on behavior. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I think when I was growing up, and it's partly just my parents, but also the time period, the 70s, I think what happened in the 60s on the media got into the 70s in like family culture. I grew up on Sesame Street, which I think right. of now as like actually really a cool show oh. and very multicultural and very understanding and caring and gentle. And I think that 
still, I, there was an expectation of behavior, but there was also this sort of like, ah, oh, you know, my mom baked bread and made yogurt and knitted, you know, she crocheted and knitted and like kind of a hippie-ish sort of, <laughs> not totally hippie, but just that had gotten into just regular middle-class family culture. Well, I think we have, when you're talking about the generations, it's like I grew up in the in the 60s, but my parents grew up in the 50s. Exactly. Kind of a thing, or, you know or the late 40s. 40s. And so their growth was set their expectations. It was post-war. Right. And so... Yeah, I think that's interesting. And another thing I was thinking about was that idea of, of trauma being treated the same as a chemical imbalance. Now, of course, a trauma can eventually lead to your chemicals being off. Yes. But that's a really interesting distinction. I had Dr. David Berselli on the show, and he does trauma-releasing exercises. He said that the part of your brain that holds trauma is the amygdala, and you can't reason with it. It's not a frontal lobe activity. It's really a part of your brain that is fight or flight. And to be able to tap into that, he does these exercises that let your body shake so that you can get to the part of your brain that's actually holding the trauma so it can release it. Right. And then you could do talk therapy. Well, I thought you, that was kind of interesting, it, the idea of is, trauma and how, how much it can rule your whole life. It can. It can. And it's so funny because uh, for much of my life, up until, oh, I don't know, in my 30s, I want to say, I was very much, I run away. I run. I am the flight. Mm-hmm. I will very much do that. But I also want to say that given that my expectation after my history and my understanding of my own personal experience, I recommend the psychotherapy. I recommend that mm-hmm. over chemical. Keep in mind, it takes a very long time, and you have to keep that in mind as well. Mm-hmm. And that is, it, it's very into it. I'm not sure if our insurance companies are very <laughs> supportive of that. And understand that, but it really mm-hmm. does take a number of years before you're able to stand on your own and such. And what I've learned on this show is that everybody has a different set of tools that get them to some sense of well-being. Whether they go up and down in their depression, which most oh. people do, you have your tools and they're different for everyone. Mm-hmm. There's no one solution. For one person, like it, medication is a big part oh, of it. Yes. And for someone else, for me, I've chosen not to do medication because I just felt like mine is based on a situational uncertainty and high stress and anxiety. And I know that's where it's coming from. I'm going to see if there's something else that works for me. Right. It's not to say that I don't suffer depression to this day. Well, I... The nice thing about it is that I can see when it's coming <laughs> now mm-hmm. and I can shore up and, and help that depression. And I can also, you know, take action. Mm-hmm. And those are very important things, but at least I can see when it's coming. Of course, if there's something that happens, like a really close friend of mine, uh, passed away a couple of years ago, it was very shocking. I, and I've had other deaths, that, you know, occur, but that one was just, totally unexpected so but I allow myself the room to have some of that process happen but under a very controlled 
situation. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I can see that it's coming. I'm going to give it like a day and a half. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm going to do all those things that I need to do. I'm going to comfort myself. I'm going to allow myself to cry. I'm going to allow myself to examine why I'm upset. Yeah. Oh, that's a perfect way to end the show. Thank you so much for being on the depression session. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septa Helix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you. You're listening to KTDTLP Tucson, Downtown Radio 99.1 FM.